The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Great point, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Great good, to be here. Good to see you. Yes, me too. Uh, Father, any uh, prayer requests to begin the program tonight? We, well, I ask uh, people to continue praying for the repose of the soul of Richard Wrenchler. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richard's funeral will be uh, Thursday morning here at Immaculate Conception Church, and it will be live streamed. The children will sing the Mass beginning at 10.30 in the morning, and uh, that's September 7th. Uh, and, uh, of course, the repose of the soul of Mr. Lester Pugh. Please continue praying for him and his family. And uh, there are many, many others who need our prayers. And, uh, but I, I simply... Uh, commend all of those in the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, and uh, would would ask all those uh, listening to uh, pray for the intentions that are given to us here at, a, at uh, what Catholics believe. There are many, many intentions that come our way, and uh, we will at some point, probably very soon, begin listing those intentions on the site, actually, so people can actually see them. But uh, there are so many, many um, uh, many, and many of them urgent intentions, so I just commend them all. God knows who they are, and he will have mercy on them because you have asked for that mercy and your charity. So. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Father. Uh, we'd like to return to the email inbox tonight. Uh, we had a couple left over that we intended to get to last week, but um, one in regards to a previous program. Uh, recently, a viewer said, this is the uh, Orthodox questioner from the episode on August 8th. I am alarmed that Father would say that the visibility of the Church can change amidst the proposed Sede Vicante, as this seems like textbook modernism. As Ott describes it, the visibility of the Church necessitates a hierarchy. In the Sede Vicante's theory, there is not just a vacancy, but an impossibility to fill those offices, since there are no ecclesial hierarchs. How does the visibility still exist when the papacy is not just vacant, but inaccessible? Well, uh, sorry, what, did the, what word? Horrified? What was the word used there? Uh, I'm alarmed. <laughs> alarmed. I'm alarmed. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, sorry to alarm you, but uh, no, nothing I said is textbook modernism. Uh, there's a, an overreaction and a mis at least a misunderstanding there. Um, I'm not saying the visibility of the church is something that... Uh, is, uh, shall we say, accidental to the church, okay? It's a, 
It's a, a necessary quality of the church. Our Lord established the church to be a visible entity with a hierarchy, no doubt about it. And uh, that cannot disappear. Uh, the fact that, that I'm saying uh, I have, we have reason to question the, uh, the current hierarchy, the Novus Ordo hierarchy, um, and their legitimacy uh, is not to say uh, that there is no hierarchy whatsoever, okay? Um, and that there is no hierarchy possible. The fact that I might say, I don't know how God is going to solve the problem, is not to say that I don't think there is a, there is a solution. And he's just kind of reading into it that I'm saying, well, you've got us into this impasse, there's no escape, <clears throat> and therefore you're saying it's over, right? Essentially. And I'm not saying that, because I don't believe that's true. Uh, I do believe that there were many times in the past where it seemed as though the church was at an impasse and uh, people could not devise a solution to solve the problem. Uh, and the more they tried, the worse it got. And uh, I think that's happening now with people dashing about trying to find a human solution to a very supernatural problem. Um, so I'm just saying that I know God has a solution to this problem. I don't know what it is, and I don't think this man does either. Uh, if, Fran if there is no question about the papacy of uh, uh, someone like Francis, who doesn't even believe in the papacy, and doesn't actually even believe in the church and wants to construct a new church in its place, um, that, that poses problems too. And again, one might, one might say, going the other way, well, the way you see it is an impasse. The church, if what you're saying is true, um, then the church really is at an impasse, and you've just basically done away with the papacy. And, and you say that a true pope can try to do away with the church. You know? and, uh, and so they can point fingers both ways and say, you're saying that the church is over, you're saying Christ's promise has failed, and uh, these are the consequences of the position you're taking. And each side would say, no, that's not what I'm saying, that's not what I mean. But the fact is, um, you know, it seems that way, and this is what we call a dilemma. And, uh, but the fact is, in this case, we all need faith, and we need the faith that Christ himself it can and will solve this problem. That whatever is facing the church these days is not something either um, outside of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as though he had no expectation of this, um, and it's not outside his his power of control either. He has the power to solve this problem, and it must be solved by grace. So, um, now if he were to say, well, how are you saying that uh, the church is in this condition and that there can still be a, an actual functioning Catholic hierarchy somewhere, right? And I would explain, well, I think it could happen this way or I think it could happen that way, right? But that's just speculation on my part. And... Um, but the fact is, I know that God can and will solve that problem. Uh, and Christ is faithful to his promises, and I'm not denying any of that. Right? It's just that we're looking at a problem that goes beyond not only our ken, but goes uh, outside the past history of the church. Um, it is a unique problem in the history of the church, frankly. Um, and um, that is going to require a unique solution from God, not from me. But I have the faith that God has the solution. Um, 
So, so I think we have to be very careful about saying, well, you know, if, if what you're saying is true, we're running out of tracks, we're going off the edge of the, you know, the, 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 the Nina, Nina Pinta and Santa Maria are going to fall off the edge of the earth, and so and so forth. And I think we have to be very careful about, you know, saying, well, I, I don't see uh, any solution to the, the situation you're proposing. Therefore, I'm saying that you're uh, textbook modernist. I think we all need the faith to know that whatever the situation the church really is, and we all are left to try to figure it out as well as we can uh, right now, uh, that God does have the, the power and the control to solve this problem. And when he does, we will all be amazed and glorify him, you know, with uh, uh, great appreciation. Uh, we have a greater appreciation ever for his divine wisdom. Okay. And, um, but that's what it's going to take, ultimately. So, um, you know, as I say, I, I have ideas. I, I, I just look back to the time of the Council of Constance and I see the situation the church was in back then, and that uh, whatever situation they thought they'd come up with to solve the problem, they just made it worse. Until God himself, God himself took, took command, you know, uh, uh, outward command of the situation, and uh, gave the solution, which gave us Pope Martin V, a great pope. We need another Martin V right now, or even better. So, uh, but God can do that. I have that faith. We all, all of us Catholics, have to have that faith that God can resolve this in his own way, in his own time. And we just have to be careful uh, in the meantime uh, not to make things worse. So, in any case, there, I, I realize there's a lot more that could be said about that. There's a lot more that actually I would like to say about it, but you'll have to read my book. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, Father, how should a traditional Roman Catholic regard the Eastern Catholic Churches post-Vatican II? Their liturgies, with some exceptions, such as the Marianites, remain traditional. However, their bishops and clergy accept the binding authority of the Council's documents. Should we assist at their liturgies in this crisis? If you find a traditional Eastern Rite priest who's still offering the traditional Eastern Rite liturgy, um, then uh, and, and there are no other problems, uh, you know, uh, that are contrary to the faith, then I think, yes, you could attend the Mass there. But, you know, some of the Eastern Rites have had um, their, their changes, too. Um, the modernists focus on the, on the Western, the, the Latin Rite, the Roman Rite, uh, because they saw its power, uh, they saw its antiquity, they figured that if they could change that, they could change virtually everything. And that's exactly what they did. But it doesn't mean they've left the, left the Eastern Rites alone. Um, they probably saw the Eastern Rites were, were much more susceptible to change, but they were more of a cultural thing, too. Uh, you have to remember that the, the, the Orthodox uh, breakaway back in the... Well, actually, I can't say... I can't pin it down to a specific date. It's generally pinned down to 954, okay? When there was a... Permanent schism after then. Um, there was the Phocian schism before that, but there was over a period of, of uh, several centuries a pulling away of Constantinople, uh, almost like a bullying of Constantinople against the other patriarchal sees, uh, because 
let's face it, the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, was the essentially the court chaplain of the emperor, right? And so there was a certain political power there that wanted to assert itself, okay? And uh, assert a certain preeminence over Jerusalem and over Antioch and over Alexandria and, and over Rome, too. Um, so um, it's, it's not, it was a process that was consummated finally at one point. But all of it had to do with cultural superiority, the cultural superiority of the Greeks as they, as they saw it over those barbarian Westerners, right? Um, and um, this was a problem that uh, could be solved very easily by the moderns. They didn't have to do to the Eastern Rites what they did to the, the Western, the Roman, the Latin Rite. Why? Because if it was a matter of cultural attachment, uh, really all they had to do was separate one generation of, uh, let's say, the Greeks, the Romanians, the Ruthenians, and so on from their uh, native rites, the Coptics, uh, the Copts, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Lebanese, just to separate them, and that generation would lose that connection as a cultural connection. And we see that happening as they spread throughout the world. Uh, their connection with their ancestors and with the ancestral rites of their faith is loosened more and more, uh, anglicized more and more here in America, and becomes more and more uh, kind of influenced by the, the Novus Ordo. Um, so, um, insofar as the Eastern rites um, you know, maintain their, their allegiance of, of, of successive generations by cultural ties. As those cultural ties begin to fade, so does that allegiance fade too, and their connection of one generation after another with the traditional mass of their, uh, of their Eastern rites. On the other hand, exactly the opposite seems to have occurred with the Latin rite. Uh, as the young generations have been separated from the Latin Rite, um, there seems to be a great resurgence among the young to want to find it again, to want to adhere to it again, to hold to it again. And this is something that has alarmed Francis, that he's trying, well, almost desperately to eliminate the traditional, uh, the traditional Latin Mass. Um, and he finds that he has to um, use every means of persuasion and, and force, even ecclesiastical force, to take it away precisely because he says that there is a resurgence of interest and desire for it among the young people, the ones who are specifically targeted to lose it and lose all connection with it, are the ones who are seeking it out now. And um, so... In, anyway, Tom, I, I do think if you find a traditional priest, and in Rome we did find some. We found some traditional uh, Eastern Rite priests who were still offering the traditional Eastern Rite liturgies very beautifully, very simply, uh, but very beautifully in some of the Eastern Rite churches of Rome. And uh, to that extent, I mean, they're not really affected so much by Vatican II in practice. They just and they're holding on to their old traditional Catholic faith in their traditional Catholic liturgy. Hmm. 
So uh, I would say if you have a priest like that, I encourage him. Uh, just make sure that he's got the filioque where it belongs, <laughs> in the credo. Um, but anyway, I guess that's as much as can be said right now. Sure. Yeah, very good. Uh, Father, what are your thoughts on the encyclical of Pope Pius XII named Divino Afonte Spiritu? And that Pope Pius XII mentioned that the Holy See should put out a corrected Latin text, Greek text, and Hebrew text according to the scholarship that was available at the time of the writing of the encyclical. And he also opened the door on other Bible translations, such as the Knox and Confraternity versions of the Bible. It says the Confraternity Bible was revised as a New American Bible, and this led to the current versions of the Bible that may not reflect the accuracy of the original text. Mm. What do you think of that encyclical, Father? Well, the encyclical Divino Aplante Spiritu of Pope Pius XII uh, actually was written as uh, on the 50th anniversary of the encyclical Providentissimus Deus by Pope Leo XIII. And the focus of these encyclicals on scriptural studies Okay, and I, I think uh, Papias XII's encyclical has drawn a lot of criticism because he, they say he opened the door to this text criticism or text historical criticism, okay? Is that significant? It is. Why? Well, because in the encyclical condemning the era of the modernists, Pope St. Pius X condemned the modernist use or abuse of text historical criticism to try to revise the faith, try to revise the scriptures and all the rest. So when people see that, um, they automatically re re refer back to what St. Pius X warned us about, the modernist abuse of this. Um, <clears throat> there is such a thing as legitimate Catholic text historical criticism. That can be perfectly Catholic. The reason why Pope Pius X condemned it in the encyclical Pascendi in 1907, is because it was coming from the modernist point of view. The modernist standpoint is to not deny faith. The modernist had re, re, uh, revised the very definition of faith itself. They changed the meaning of what faith is uh, to a kind of experience of the divine, completely contrary to the Catholic understanding of what faith really is, what the virtue of faith really is. And, and in fact, the modernist really did away entirely with the virtue of faith as the Catholic Church always taught it to be. They simply eliminated the idea of the virtue of faith, limiting to, to a faith experience. You know? <clears throat> and when you start with that from that vantage point, and you've basically eliminated faith, you start from the, the false philosophical vantage points that St. Pius X started with, it is a cyclical against modernism, in which he talks about its, uh, its uh, what do you call it, agnosticism and uh, phenomenalism. When you start from that point of view, text historical criticism is just a deadly weapon. It's just a battering ram to smash away all things and, and, and basically undermine everything. Uh, but if you start with the uh, uh, standpoint of, of having the faith, and you really believe this is the truth here, and so we uh, have to apply this method here in the service of that truth. That's a very different thing. And that's what Pope Leo XIII was talking about in Providentissimus. That's what Pope Pius XII was talking about, actually, in Divino Aflante Spiritu. He's saying, 
start as Catholics from the standpoint of faith, and you can use this to great advantage. For example, one thing that Pope Pius XII mentioned in our day and age, in, in his day, it was back in the 1940s, you know, 43, he said there has been a, a lot of excavation in the Holy Land. We found things that are spoken of in the Bible that, you know, the, the critics of the Bible were, were kind of dismissing and saying, oh, that's just a myth, that's just a myth, that's just a myth. And now we have people actually digging and their shovels are hitting, you know, the walls of Jericho. <laughs> and... Um, and they're, they're actually uncovering the history of the Bible and showing this is exactly what the Bible told us we'd find. And uh, he, so he talks about these excavations as being a very good scientific approach to actually uncover the meaning mm -hmm. and enrich our understanding of the sacred scriptures. Um, there's hardly a Catholic priest who's gotten in a pulpit and not engaged in text historical criticism. And by that I mean... Yet he's preparing a sermon, he's looking at the gospel passage for the day, and he starts researching it. He says, okay, well, I have the translation here, but what does it actually say in the Greek text, right? And uh, as far as the Greek text go, uh, I look in the, uh, and I see what the variations might be, you know. And um, I, I even go to the fathers and I ask them to tell me, answer these questions, you know, because they analyze these things. And Augustine would analyze those things. Uh, based upon the Greek text, and um, and uh, that th it's very enriching. I've done this many times. I, you know, you look at the word "our Lord emptied himself," right? He emptied himself during Passion Time. We talk about that, and you go and you look at the Greek word of that. You see how was that Greek word used? You see its use in various other parts of Scripture. But you see how it's used also even outside of Scripture. What did that connote to somebody? How, what was the impact of this, this one word? I've done the same thing with anoten, the word used in St. John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse, verse 15, verse 5 through 15. And our Lord talks about being born again of water and the Holy Ghost. <coughs> well, that expression, born again, is the Greek word anoten, and it's used four times in, sacred, in the New Testament. And every time it's used in the New Testament, except one, it means from above. But in this one case, it's translated again. And St. Saint, uh, Saint Jerome translated as denuo, anew, to be born anew. Okay. But the, the actual word is used in other parts of sacred history, means to be born from above. That has a very great significance in light of St. John's Gospel in light of the proemium, the, 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 what we call the last gospel, that we read at the Mass as the last gospel. To be born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of, not, not of blood, but to be born of God. I mean, St. John repeats this theme over and over again in his gospel and his epistles. And it really shows there the sense that it's not a matter, of, we have to be born not just a second time like Nicodemus understood it. You have to go back to your mother's womb and, and be born again, right? <clears throat> And our Lord expressed astonishment that he, as a teacher of Israel, did not understand these things. And, uh, but it, it has a meaning even beyond the denuo of St. Jerome. It has a meaning of being born from above, from God, to be born of God. And so if this is a text historical criticism or what, whatever, um, it does have a Catholic explanation uh, and a Catholic use, but it has to be motivated 
by faith, to elucidate the faith, not to destroy it. The modernists saw it as a weapon because they denied not only the faith, they denied faith itself. In their hands, it was an abuse and very destructive. Uh, but St. Pius X didn't condemn text historical criticism in itself. He knew it could be used uh, to elucidate the faith and to really inspire people on the faith. So, uh, you know, to go through the entire Divino Aponte Spiritu is not possible here and now, but I would just say that that is one criticism I see that pops up from time to time. And I think it is... Uh, a kind of a, a, just a reaction, kind of a, what do you call it, a, uh, a re reflex reaction, as soon as they say, oh, this criticism has no place in Catholic teaching. And the answer is, when we delve into the background of sacred scriptures, we find such a richness that is there, and it is actually uh, not inimical to the faith. It is very, very inspiring to us when it's used from the standpoint motivated by faith and by hope and by charity, a love for God. What would you say about these other more modern uh, translations that would have come out like the Well, unfortunately, the modernists had their hand in all these things. Unfortunately, the modernists uh, played a part in these things. And I think, you know, the, the modernists get in their little, little claws in all this by saying, well, let's make it more understandable to people. Let's make it easier for the people to understand. Let's simplify it. Beware that, okay? so that the people are drawn to it. Now, you know, in itself, that's like saying, well, let's write uh, like a Bible text for children. So we'll make it accessible to children. Um, and there's a certain argument in favor of that. We'd like our children to have little Bible storybooks and Bible reading books, and that's fine. But we don't want them to stay on that level. Uh, we want them to grow up, as St. Paul says, and not just take the milk, but we want them to take the meat, right? And the modernist approach is always to dumb down, simplify, right? And in simplifying, they're actually taking away the maturity of the faith and keeping everybody on this really low elementary uh, preschool level, you know, in terms. And um, they're doing this for a reason, because they believe that they can actually rob people of the faith and get them to think of faith in terms that they, modernists, think of it, like a children's experience of faith. <clears throat> but um, but uh, the so I look at these these translations that have come out, and I see this is a common thread through all of them. They let's make it accessible to people. Well, that's what they said about the mass when they changed the mass. Let's make it accessible to people so they can understand it. Right. Uh, this is what was being said on the floor of the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council. Let's let's take a mystery out. Let's make it accessible so anybody who comes in, Catholic or not, can sit down. And understand what's happening there. If you take the mystery out of the Mass, you just destroy the Mass. The Mass is a mystery, necessarily, intrinsically mysterious. It's a divine thing, right? So, uh, but this is what modernism does. So, no, I'm not in favor of these modern translations. I think, uh, again, they, they stand already condemned in principle by St. Pius X because of what they said that we're trying to achieve by them. Yeah, very good. That's very helpful. Thank you, Father. Um, uh, certainly. Yeah.
Maybe another question here. Father, uh, this viewer says that uh, in a recent interview, you spoke about how a priest may say private masses for the conversion of dead heretics. Uh, for example, a Lutheran. This would be a mass presumably offered after the heretic is dead and did not formally join the visible body of the true church while still alive. But if this practice was acceptable, would it then not stand on the same logic that it would also be acceptable to offer private masses for the conversion of any dead heretic? Uh, then also, why not offer Mass for Judas or Muhammad, etc.? If the highest prayer of the Church, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, can be said for the conversion of anyone, then why would such a thing need to be kept secret? Would it not suffice to just announce that such and such a Mass was being offered for the retroactive grace of repentance and conversion of for the soul of uh, the person mentioned? How can the Mass benefit a soul that died outside the Church in time and space? This seems to me to fly in the face of logic and reason and the traditional practice of the faith. Have not popes condemned such things in the past? Could you please elaborate more on this, Father? A lot of questions. Okay, well, I will elaborate, but try to be succinct at the same time. Uh, um, the church, no one can help somebody who died outside the faith, denying the faith that Jesus Christ established, right? It's impossible, right? You have to have the virtue of faith in order to have true hope and true charity and to be saved. That's a fact. But the church does tell us that we can pray, yes, even after a heretic dies, we can, we can accept the fact that we don't know what graces that heretic received because of all the prayers that were being offered for him up until that moment. We just don't know until that last moment of consciousness. Uh, the church has never pronounced anyone condemned to hell. That's very significant. The church has pronounced souls that are, who are in heaven now and canonized them as saints. The church is guaranteeing to us that these souls uh, had extraordinary sanctity, died in a state of sanctifying grace, and are even now in the beatific vision in heaven. The church can give us that certitude with the authority of Christ speaking to us. But the church has never ventured to give us the name of somebody who is in hell. Even Judas, the church has never pronounced on the subject. Okay? So, that being the fact, that the church is not in a position to do that, because the church is not in a position to do that. That's why she hasn't done it. And, uh, and neither are we. So we do not know what graces God has given to anyone, any particular person. Uh, now we might say, well, Judas, I mean, the scriptures are very clear on that. Well, that's fine. They're clear to you, clear to me. The church has not said, you know, as a matter of divine Catholic faith, defined Catholic faith, that Judas uh, uh, went to hell, okay? That I know of, okay? But the fact is that even if the church did, it does not customarily do that, right? Even with the worst, the, the most bad actors in history, uh, the church has not actually made a pronouncement on those facts. And that means that you and I do not really know what graces God could have or might have given that person, in the, even in the moments of death, to move that worst person to repent and to embrace the faith. And so, with that understanding, we can say, well, it is possible that that person saved his soul. It is possible that this person is in purgatory, doing penance for all the evil of the heresy and so on. 
and I can pray for that person, and uh, I can even uh, pray that God, add my prayers, to pray that God would give the person the grace at the moment of death to convert. Uh, but that's what my prayer is for. Uh, I know very well that if they died outside the faith, that they cannot be saved. If my prayer is, well, I pray that they died inside the faith and that they were converted, I'm asking God to grant that grace. If he didn't, he will apply my prayer to some other more profitable use, right? Um, the church itself, ultimately, though, is not what, it's not what you say, it's not what I say. It's what the church herself has said. And the church herself has said, including some of her most rigorous theologians, the strictest of the strict theologians the church has given to us, uh, as moral theologians, names like Dominic Prumer, for example, <coughs> said very clearly that you can't apply the graces for a mass offering for the intention of someone who, as far as is humanly possible to know, died outside the faith, not knowing what graces were given to that person at the moment, you can still ask God to have mercy on them applying the graces they need to be saved. And if, if they were saved somehow by the graces that were offered for them, uh, by the prayers and sacrifices that were offered for them, uh, then if they're in purgatory, you can ask God to have mercy on them in purgatory too. But his question is also, but why not make that public? And the answer is precisely because the church says that it could be misinterpreted easily misinterpreted by the Catholic faithful and the non-Catholic people that you're saying, oh, well, the church believes that everybody's saved, or it's a matter of religious indifferentism. It doesn't matter if you died outside the Catholic faith. We still have expectation that even if you died outside the faith, you could be saved anyway. And we know that's not true. Okay? So to avoid uh, confusion on the part of the Catholic people, uh, the church has just said that I, as a priest, for example, if I had someone say, could you pray for my mom and dad? They were Lutherans, and they're both dead. Uh, can you offer a Mass for them? And I would say, well, I can offer a Mass for the, that they converted, that they saved their souls, that God gave them the graces necessary. And, uh, but without that, then, nothing, the, then whatever graces would come from the Mass could not be applied to them. But I can... I can ask God for that uh, by offering a Mass for them, but I cannot publicly announce I'm offering Mass for the Protestant parents of so-and-so here. Um, this was the Church's rule, and uh, I can see the wisdom of it in saying that people are going to walk away from that saying, well, I guess you can be saved outside the Church, and you can't. You have to convert to the faith. Uh, the problem is really that people think, well, we didn't see it, so it didn't happen. So it couldn't have happened. And you say, just because you didn't see it and I didn't see it, perhaps no one saw it, but God saw it. And perhaps he applied the graces. The church, as long as the church has not pronounced anybody condemned to hell, then we can pray for them. Wow. All right, very good. Uh, Father, anything else you wanted to add? I know you wanted to... Have a shorter program tonight. So. Well, uh, Tom, I think we could just wrap it up and just say, please pray those rosaries, okay? We have this uh, amendment on the ballot for November 7th here in Ohio, and it's going to affect 
basically all of the states that are holding out against abortion. Uh, the, the leftist uh, abortionist radicals are desperately trying to get Ohio to write into its constitution uh, a quote-unquote right to commit abortion even up to the baby's moment of birth, right? Even up to then. And the thing is, I mean, you know the consequences of that because we've seen the reality of it. Um, it's, it's not even permitted to save a child who survived an abortion. You have to let that child die. If the child survives the abortion, you cannot save that life. You have to watch that child die in New York and other places too. Uh, I think Virginia too, if I'm not mistaken. And um, so this is really about killing children. It's all about killing children. So we have to do everything in our power to, uh, well, to resist the, child, the, the, the evil of child murder. And uh, this is what's on the plate for Ohioans to decide. So anyway, so please pray for that. We're all praying for it. And we're getting busy to, to uh, state our case for the people of Ohio so they, hopefully at least they can make an informed decision. I hope they make the right, <laughs> right, godly decision. Okay. So. Well, Father, thank you. God bless you. Appreciate thank you very you. much. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary to pray and do penance. Thank you. And God bless you.